Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black leg. If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am. Streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! And good morning. It's Annie, all on her lonesome today. Everybody else is very busy. I'm hoping that Lolita's having a lovely holiday. Uh, Kim is working like the devil. And uh, Noah, who I'd asked to come back for... Uh, to say hello to the listeners uh, for the first uh, time in 2016. He had to bow out because, for goodness sake, his wife's having a baby. Goodness me. I I think wives having babies trump even Solidarity Breakfast. Isn't that amazing? We wish them only luck. Uh, This morning we've got uh, lots of things to talk about. Uh, We're going to uh, make an excursion into uh, the... um, Transitions Film Festival, which is an ongoing uh, ideas fest. It's the fifth year of uh, the Trans uh, Mission Film Transitions Film Festival. It's uh, all about ideas. It runs from the 18th of February to the 3rd of March, and over the next three weeks, we're going to uh, have the privilege of having a yarn with uh, a, a different uh, filmmakers around the films that they've been. Uh, are working on and uh, taking out to the world. The film that we're looking at today is Requiem for the American Dream and we're going to have a yarn, well I did, I got up very early this morning for for your benefit to have a chat with uh, uh, one of the directors of the film who is Jared, Jared, oh, I'll move all my papers, Jared Scott. Uh, he was um, one of the directors, the others Kelly Nix and Peter Hutch, they couldn't get up but uh, we talked and uh, we've got lots of things to to, uh, to share about uh, what is one of probably the last Noam Chomsky's uh, essays, uh, spoken filmic essays to the world as he uh, looks over the um, past uh, well century. Because he's as he as uh, Jared says, he's quite an old fellow now, about eighty seven, cruising up to the ninetieth uh, year. Anyway, he has a lot to say, and it's a very interesting film. So we uh, showcase that today after 8 o'clock. Uh, for those people who are worried that uh, Kevin Healy is never going to come back from holidays, basking in the sun, uh, he's actually coming back next week. So uh, uh, if uh, you're really having, um, as I've heard some people are, having uh, Kevin Healy withdrawal symptoms, he's actually back next week. Now, uh, the other things we've got to talk about is... Uh, uh, Nothing new, uh, the Australian government deciding that it's going to uh, sell off assets and uh, use it for very little good purpose for the Australian uh, uh, 
uh, people uh, from half past eight to nine. We're going to have a a look at uh, the selling off of the Linfield Studios in Sydney and uh, the passing on of the $35 million to uh, two of the biggest uh, international media companies in the world, uh, 20th Century Fox, our friend Murdoch, and uh, Disney to lure them to Australia to make two blockbusters blockbusters. There you go. Anyway, tune in for that little uh, discussion with Sharon Connolly, who is the uh, previous uh, head of, uh, she used to be the CEO of the Australian Film Commission, which has now morphed into the to Screen Australia. But uh, before we do, I've got a great little story that um, uh, I found in the arts. Uh, it's an arts magazine, and I thought you'd all enjoy this. Uh, the uh, it was written up by uh, it's a it's a an article that was uh, uh, written up about uh, uh, Evan uh, Hughes, who's the son of the uh, f- uh, founder of Hughes Gallery, uh, Ray Hughes, who's an influential, very influential gallery owner in uh, Sydney, and very important to the formation of the Australian art scene. Uh, anyway, this is the he's decided that he's going to run for office this year at the forthcoming federal election for the Australian Labor Party in the Blue Ribbon Harbourside Sydney electorate of Wentworth. The seat is currently held by the most popular Conservative President, Prime Minister, sorry, Conservative Prime Minister in recent Australian history, Malcolm Turnbull, whose family I have sold paintings to, says uh, uh, Mr Hughes. In the 1990s, when Malcolm was still a merchant banker, the uh, Turnbull family commissioned one of my father's artists, Lewis Miller, to paint a portrait of Malcolm. Unhappy with the work, Turnbull confronted my father at a function and exclaimed, That artist of yours is no good. He's made me look like a big, fat, greedy cunt, excuse the French. To which my father replied, He is a realist painter, you know. (laughs) Would you like to get involved in the decision-making process at 3CR? Nominations are now open in 3CR's Community Radio Federation elections. You can stand as a subscriber representative and have valuable input into the programming and future direction of this diverse and dynamic radio station. Nominations are due Wednesday 17th of February at 5pm. For more information, contact 3CR's station manager, Mary McEwen, on 94198377 or download the nomination form from the 3CR website 3cr.org.au forward slash people. I'm Chris White. I'm the former Secretary of Trades Hall, United Trades and Labor Council in South Australia. I'm a retired union activist and I've been following many union issues and on this occasion particularly what is known as the Trade Union Royal Commission with Dyson Hayden, which cost $80 million to have a union hunt into unions which you would have seen in the media or blown up. Uh, But this is a very important issue and unionists and workers in the community should critically examine the report and come up with a, a campaign to oppose it strongly because it's absolutely outrageous. For example... During this uh, Royal Commission period, there were 837 workers killed in industries, particularly in the construction industry, yet none of this was looked at. None of the uh, bosses uh, who uh, caused these deaths 
were investigated or brought to account. Rather, the unions, particularly the CFMEU, but other unions legitimately examining and wanting to prevent health and safety problems are having their rights to put workers' lives before corporate profits, that they're having these rights uh, taken away. And it's very difficult to go through the whole of the Royal Commission, and so I'm only going to pick out some uh, aspects of it. Uh, All the corruption allegations are completely uh, exaggerated, Uh, But one of the key recommendations, which is completely uh, outrageous, is for the special legislation to be passed saying that certain union leaders that politicians don't like should not be union leaders. So the parliament removes them, which is a total outrage because this means that workers can't uh, vote for their union leadership, can't themselves hold leaders to account. And if we had that sort of uh, change coming in, when we'd be really going right back uh, to the 19th century. Uh, In February next month, there's going to be union meetings, and I encourage people to be involved in that, to look at what the ACTU is doing, uh, to start getting a campaign to educate people. So it's not only on issues such as the weekend penalty rates, but on the new laws labour laws, or not labour laws, are anti-labour laws, that the Turnbull government will be trying to introduce during this election campaign. And if union organising is to succeed in Australia, uh, to be legitimate, look after workers' rights, then we have to defeat this legislation. We haven't seen the details of it yet, but many of it will be uh, expressed or come out of this Royal Commission. So, uh, as I said, the mere suggestion that any government should determine who the trade union leadership is extraordinary. And also the restrictions, further restrictions on the right to strike is extraordinary. Already, Australia has the most repressive laws against strikes in the world with penalties and fines and not being able to take legitimate union strike action, further uh, increased uh, penalties. Um, When you have a legal right to strike in enterprise bargaining, quite often it's necessary to have a picket at the same time. But they're going to make sure that pickets are illegal, even if when you have a lawful strike, so that they can uh, impose greater fines and get the police in to uh, stop these uh, pickets. One of the other key issues is to criminalise the right of a union to enter a workplace to investigate problems at work and to interview union members. There are already incredible regulations on the right of union organisers to enter a workplace, but uh, the provisions are to increase uh, fines if there's any technical uh, breaches or all sorts of other conditions. So the uh, criminalisation of normal union organising is extremely serious and really takes, again, uh, right back to the 19th century when... Uh, workers and unions started being formed, started to argue that uh, union activity is normal, is legitimate and should not be penalised. There are other issues such as um, wanting to intervene 
in what we can bargain over. So, for example, we have the best superannuation system in the world where unions are involved in managing superannuation trusts and, again, uh, they want to take away uh, the right to uh, collectively bargain on those sort of issues. One of the other uh, issues are that we are already, unions are already severely limited in that there are penalties for pattern bargaining or industry bargaining, that is for more than one employer. Now, in, it used to be quite normal to have industry bargaining, uh, but now we have uh, penalties. It's unlawful to take industry strikes. And again, um, the uh, Royal Commission recommends a stiffening up of restrictions to make sure that uh, unions have to go enterprise by enterprise rather than on, on the industry. And particularly is identifying the construction and building industry so that they can bring in more laws against the CFMEU. Listeners may be aware that the uh, existing ABCC, which is Australian Building Construction uh, Commission, is a specialist union busting against civil liberties to surveil and then prosecute what they consider is illegal activity, but it is really normal union activity by the building unions. And I'm sure that the Turnbull government is looking at making sure that this union-busting police force can be, expend, can be extended to all sections of the union movement. So um, people who are involved in campaigns have the political right to protest and go on rallies or are involved in enterprise bargaining who quite appropriately take industrial action to prevent health and safety, they will incredibly be subject to a police force type action being surveilled and then pulled into a kangaroo court uh, to be told it's all illegal and all unlawful. Now, again, this is there to uh, intimidate uh, workers and intimidate unions, but workers and unions in the past haven't been intimidated, have been able to join together more strongly and to fight these extraordinarily repressive uh, laws. So there will be campaigns, get onto your union, find out what they're doing about these important uh, issues and um, make sure that uh, you're involved in uh, lobbying, uh, telling people about the severe restrictions coming up again on unions and make sure we defeat not only the legislation that's coming up but also the Turnbull government who's implementing exactly the same anti-union policies as the Abbott government has been doing. I am not in love But I'm open to persuasion East or West. When you think of community, uh, think of 3CR. When you think of radio, think of 3CR. This is Joan Armour Trading asking you to support your community radio station, 3CR, the only alternative. But with a love I could hold my hand back, thrilling love, thrilling love. Thank you. 
Yes, you're on uh, 3CR with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast. You might have uh, been aware that uh, the MV Portland Day of a ship that uh, was uh, a local uh, crew ship that uh, went from uh, Western Australia to Portland from an Alcoa uh, mining site port to uh, the smelter in Portland has uh, been uh, given a special uh, licence from the Turnbull government to uh, be uh, sold and uh, then replaced by a... uh, a foreign-owned flag of convenience ship with foreign crew. So this is uh, not just uh, this ship. It's now become a uh, a um, galvanised people into a protest around uh, fighting for local jobs, not only uh, fighting the deregulation of the uh, maritime industry in Australia, but also the absolutely vital fight for Australian jobs, local jobs. And uh, the uh, the CFMEU uh, paper actually reports that uh, on Friday there was workers in Newcastle were rallying at the Tamago smelter, uh, smelter following news that yet another vessel crewed by locals is leaving the Australian coast. The 16 Australian crew on board the CSL Melbourne, chartered by Pacific Aluminium, has been told that uh, in the last past 24 hours that all the jobs will be lost when they sail the vessel to Singapore. The CSL Melbourne has been running aluminia, alumina between Newcastle and uh, Gladstone for the past five years, but these jobs will go after the company received a temporary licence, another temporary licence from the Turnbull government in the past month. So it's not just a little blip on the horizon. This is a concerted effort from the federal government to undermine local jobs in the maritime industry. You're on... uh, Solidarity Breakfast with Annie on 3CR. We need to all work together to, uh, in a concerted fashion, as Chris White said earlier in the program, to uh, look at uh, and change the direction that Australia is going. Now, I spoke to Mark Zimsack from uh, Tax Justice Network uh, because as uh, inequality is increasing and the sense of powerlessness is increasing in the uh, community, uh, one uh, aspect of this sense of uh, need to change is uh, the connection between tax and inequality. So we'll hear what he's got to say about that. We're talking to Mark Simsack here from uh, the Tax Justice Network Australia. Can you explain to us what the Tax Justice Network is? I know this is just a branch because it's international, isn't it? Yeah, so the Tax Justice Network is a global movement that works on combating tax evasion, tax avoidance uh, by multinational companies and seeks for a global system of tax that is fair, that uh, ensures that people globally benefit from having the adequate services and supports they need in terms of health and education and, um, you know, supporting vulnerable people in the community, people with disabilities, mental health issues, 
those kind of things. Now, uh, when you say multinationals, you're honing in on the uh, issue that had come out recently in the Oxfam report and in other places that uh, actually it's tax havens. The whole concept of uh, multinationals being able to pretend that the value that they create from their business is actually being transferred to a tax haven where no tax is actually taken uh, rather than from the countries where they're actually making the profit. That's what's going on, isn't it? Well, yeah. So the substance of this issue has been that uh, when the global tax rules were first developed, they were developed in an era where the multinational corporation really was in its infancy and we certainly didn't have a digital economy uh, so what we've seen over time is these corporations, some of these corporations have gotten very good at setting up artificial structures uh, with the facilitation of some governments uh, that contrive to allow them to shift profits to places where they're not really doing business and then those governments that facilitate that have given them secrecy and uh, helped them hide these profits and then tax them very lightly normally. Uh, probably better to talk about secrecy jurisdictions um, as opposed to talking about tax havens. I mean, a tax haven is simply a, a place that has low tax. The problem is more these places, and the reason they, they get the name secrecy jurisdictions, is that they are governments that are willing to facilitate tax evasion and tax avoidance by companies and hide it from the governments that are being ripped off. So it's, it's governments who are willing to cheat other governments out of what is legitimately tax revenue they should be getting. Now, a lot of the time people are uh, quite um, bemused by it because uh, since uh, the electronic uh, uh, systems that have been put into place, a lot of value has changed, And uh, but it's been tandem with neoliberal sort of conceptions of uh, how countries should be operating their economies. So, so actually it's gone hand in hand. Governments have stopped... Uh, believing that their job is to actually maintain society within their own borders, it's actually to compete with other economies, and that's their function. Would is that a fair statement? Look, I think from my point of view, I'd I'd probably put the case more that uh, government is a is a contested area of ground, and different there are different parts of society that really can. Uh, decide what direction government goes and I think you know what we struggle with is often there is this aggressive as you talked about neoliberal uh, sector that, that seeks to try and get governments to behave as if they were businesses and that their job is to compete with each other and that leads to basically ordinary people not getting the services they want it also means some of these uh, governments work to undermine a greater good and, and you know at a time when really what we need is governments acting collaboratively on many issues whether it be things like climate change or dealing with refugee flows globally or fixing the global tax system these are things you know government has it should have a different function from business and it shouldn't perceive itself as but as as a business but i also think we shouldn't see government as kind of a hostile force at the end of the day we as a community should be seeking to take government back and have government operate in our interests as the broader community, not simply throw our hands up and uh, uh, surrender.
surrender to the idea that government's in the pocket of big business. Well, definitely from the 1970s when the uh, whole neoliberal experiment uh, it bl- blossomed, it's quite clear that uh, the tax dollar that uh, was uh, supporting, underpinning society effectively has uh, gone, disappeared. You know, their, their whole notion was that there should be a small government, as small a government as possible, that there should be privatisation of uh, public assets and ultimately there should be low taxes so or no taxes. So when they talk about corporations uh, paying tax uh, or 22% tax, which is what's being uh, mooted here, and that they should increase the GST tax here to support government, then in actual fact, people turn around and say, but corporations don't pay tax anyway. Certainly if you look at the, the data, there are companies who, who do, you know, pay close to uh, the, the statute rate or pay the statute rate. So there are many companies who look like they're doing the right thing. There are certainly many who are also aggressive, though, and do what they can to avoid paying taxes. Um, you know, and we've certainly seen that of some of the the major tech companies, but it's not just them. It does extend into uh, all sorts of other sectors, uh, energy, mining companies. Um, I, I do think, you know, your, your premise is correct. The neoliberals do have a view of wanting to see um, a small but also authoritarian government. I mean, by and large, they, they want to see a government that restrains, um, you know, unions. They want to see governments that basically protect the private market and protect private industries very aggressively and in very authoritarian ways. So they're actually not... They're about small government in some ways, but in other ways they're very much dependent on on government uh, to uh, implement their, their radical agenda on the rest of society. So, um, And I think that that's where, going back to my comments before, I think that's where the fight needs to be about actually deciding, us as a community, deciding what we want our government to do and, and have it governed for the greater good of people, not for this very small interest of these um, neoliberals as such. Most people feel a bit like they're overwhelmed. They're overwhelmed by the idea that uh, corporations are actually running the governments, not the other way around, and that what methods can be used to rein this uh, financial um, juggernaut? Australia does have, at the moment, uh, we still do have... Uh, a relatively progressive taxation by comparison to, to many other countries. So I think we have stuff that can be preserved. I think if you were looking domestically, there are measures like the superannuation concessions, which overwhelmingly favour wealthy people. Negative gearing, which again is largely benefits people on much higher incomes, which is you know basically um, getting an offset on the basis that you're losing money from investment in properties. Uh, capital investments get taxed at a lower rate. So the Howard government introduced a 50% discount on the taxes for capital gains, which basically means taxes on investments get treated for some crazy reason, um, different to taxes on labour, which is, you know, money you've earned through your effort, um, which those things kind of don't make sense. They'd be ways you could make the Australian tax system more progressive and collect more revenue. Now, the issue we have here in Australia is actually, by comparison, to the rest of the wealthy countries, the OECD, we actually do collect less tax. The average tax collection in the OECD is about a third of gross domestic product. In Australia, we're down to about a quarter of uh, gross domestic product. So that's a lot of revenue we've forgone. That said, Australia does have a lot lower collection of tax from taxes on consumption than in these other places. So there are 
there have been trade-offs. I certainly wouldn't, uh, and you know, from a tax justice point of view, supporting an increase in consumption taxes, uh, particularly is, is as the government now has started to suggest to, to use that as an offset to give the wealthy more tax cuts by cutting both corporate tax rates and the upper end of the personal tax, income tax rates. That doesn't make sense. That's just, a, that's just a getting, getting people on lower incomes to pick up more of the tax collection, and that, that's not a more progressive or just society. No, it's quite fascinating, isn't it? Because it's become quite normalised that uh, the GST should be just increased. As, uh, and it's quite interesting because it's not specific. It, uh, it's, uh, it can uh, be increased at any stage and it's crippling for people on low and uh, a limited income. Well, I think uh, I, I certainly don't take the GST increase as a given. I mean, we still have uh, state premiers who are not indicating support for it, or even if even some of those who have in, advocated support potentially for an increase in GST, it's qualified on the basis that it be used for certain purposes. So, uh, for example, certainly the um, South Australian Premier Jay Weatherall seems to be suggesting he would only support a GST increase if it was if the extra money was going to be used to fund uh, health and education, not as the federal government has been talking about funding tax tax breaks for the wealthy. So I don't think we should take it as a given that the GST will increase. I think there's a long way to go. And certainly federally, Labor has indicated also, the Labor Party and the Greens have indicated they won't support it. So the government would have a hard time uh, under the current parliament getting any passing of a GST. We obviously will likely see this as a proposal put forward at the uh, round of uh, the next election. So uh, I think this is a matter still to be decided and I think people still have the opportunity to have their voice heard on this on this matter and um, you know whether it be at state or federal level because if the federal government wants to get this through it will need the cooperation of all states so it only requires one state government to hold out against it and we won't see a GST increase. Now, if you go back to the uh, notion that uh, there's rule by uh, a, a strategy of tension where people get uh, quite uh, uh, worried and upset that if it's uh, the argument is put forward that, uh, oh, well, the ship will go down if we don't increase our tax intake, what's another alternative well, at the moment, the government's not talking about increasing our tax intake. So the government's actually talking about simply keeping the... In fact, they're talking about reducing the tax intake. So that, that's the concerning part. So they're talking about a GST increase in order to fund tax cuts for the wealthy uh, and basically the net result being a, a reduction in the amount of revenue government has to function. So I don't, I don't think there's really... And I do think we, you know, we experienced this uh, across... I think people only need to look around society and see parts of government that aren't functioning as well as they should because of lack of resources. Uh, you know, that, that is, you know, there's only so much that you can ask government employees to do, um, so many extra hours you can ask them to work, which, you know, isn't fair to be asking people to make unpaid work hours. Um, there does need to be more resourcing in, in many areas. Um, so, you know, everything from support for people with disabilities or mental health issues, aged care, child protection, uh, and we see it across a range of look at all the people who get ripped off, particularly people on migrant worker visas who get cheated by unscrupulous employers and there's a lack of law enforcement there, a lack of uh, resources for the Fair Work Ombudsman to actually 
put a stop and, and clamp down on this, um, you know, widespread ripping off of, of uh, working people. So, you know, I think there's no shortage of, of where there's need for more government revenue. So it is alarming to hear about a federal government talking about wanting to actually cut revenue, not uh, not look at at least preserving what we've got. Well, I must say that uh, it might seem a little... Uh cynical or radical to say that uh, this government, as far as I can make out, is a failed government in the sense that it doesn't govern, uh, in the sense that it seems to have mislaid the principle of public interest. Do you have any uh, views on that? Uh, Look, I I probably wouldn't wouldn't frame it um, quite in that way. I mean, certainly... We, uh, on when we're looking at the tax area, this government at the federal level has introduced some measures to clamp down on uh, multinational corporate tax avoidance, and some of those have been really strong measures. The legislation that was passed late last year requiring multinational companies to have to report on their um, financial affairs broken down on a country-by-country basis is seen by the Tax Justice Network globally as a model that other countries should be following. So the Australian legislation is actually very good. Uh, the only short, shortcoming has been there was no agreement to allow any of the reporting to be made public. But beyond that is much stronger legislation than many European countries are introducing. So I, I, I probably wouldn't take a position of saying, you know, everything this, the current federal government has done is, is not good or is, is bad. I think there are there are you know, some areas where we've seen some good things come out. There are certainly many other areas where uh, there would be concern about a lack of commitment to resourcing and funding of um, services that we as a community and supports that we as a community should, should be able to expect the government to provide. However, this uh, today it was announced that uh, uh, companies uh, at a particular echelon um, don't have to give public uh, uh, disclosure of their income sources and that uh, there's going to be a process of uh, self, uh, self-assessment self uh, in regards to their tax burden? Uh, look, we've... we've um, I think where, where we have seen this government hasn't been committed to is, is public disclosure on the, the tax affairs of corporations and businesses and I think that, that's been a disappointing... Um, area, but as I said, that's uh, that has been on the other side of the equation. The government has moved to create greater disclosure to tax authorities, and has uh, the Australian government has agreed to allow the Australian Taxation Office to work collaboratively with tax authorities around the world to crack to you know basically work together to crack down on these systems that some of these multinational companies have to shift their money around the world and dodge paying taxes in the places they're really doing business. So I think it's a bit of a mixed a mixed bag. But certainly on the transparency front, you're correct. There, there is concern, and the government has talked about um, simply having a voluntary code where uh, what companies disclose to the public will be something they do voluntarily. I think that is inadequate and uh, disappointing that the government hasn't been willing to simply mandate the disclosure and... Um, require it of companies to, to put out the information, which we've started in Europe. There is now a requirement on banks to have to publish their revenue, their profits, the number of employees they have and their taxes they've paid broken down by every country that they're operating in. And that's public information. Now, there's no reason why that shouldn't apply to 
large corporations operating in Australia. But it's quite clear, isn't it, that uh, tax and uh, inequality do have some sort of uh, strong connection? Oh, look, absolutely. There, there is absolutely no doubt that a, a tax system operates. I mean, a tax system is, is generally a, tra- a tax system is a transfer system. I mean, governments never collect taxes for the purposes of, of tucking them away. They, they're there to basically be spent in other areas and effectively so it becomes a transfer system and in progressive societies and just societies what you can use a tax system for is to help balance out the inequalities that would otherwise emerge and ensure that you have a good society, a society where everybody uh, is is protected from misfortunes that, that might otherwise befall them, where the vulnerable, are, the vulnerable are looked after and protected, so whether that be you know, children needing to be um, protected from abuse, whether it be people with disabilities having the appropriate support services and being empowered to make decisions about their own lives in a way that's appropriate for their needs. Um, they're the things that you, you would you, you use a tax system for if you want a good society and a just society and a society worth living in and one that doesn't have gross inequalities where a handful of people are fabulously wealthy and there's a large number of people living in, in misery. You're on 3CR with Annie, and that's the uh, Australian Burundian, Burundian drummers with their rendition of Australia. Uh, that We've just been listening to a chat I had with Mark Zim, Zimmer-Zach from the uh, Tax Justice Network about the uh, connection between uh, tax and inequality. And uh, we're moving right along on, in, on a pace with pace to our next uh, little uh, story, which is about uh, the Transitions Film Festival. As I said, it starts on the 18th of February and goes to the 3rd of March. And uh, we're going to be chatting with different people over the next three weeks leading up to that uh, start date. And the first one we've been uh, lucky to have a chat with is uh, Jared P. Scott, uh, about Requiem for the American Dream. If you're a film buff, you'll realise that that's doffing the hat to the amazing uh, Aronofsky film uh, Requiem for a Dream. This is a requiem for the whole of the American Dream. So let's have a listen to uh, my chat with uh, Jared. Requiem for the American Dream. As you, your film notes say, Noam Chomsky is one of the most important intellectuals alive. How did you get this to happen, this film? Well, um, well, myself and Peter and Kelly, the three of us sat down 
And we wanted to make a film about Noam Chomsky, about some of his ideas. We got together after 2010. And so this was when, um, in, in at least the filmmaking timeline, I think Charles Ferguson had just released Inside Job. And, and still no one had gone to, um, no one was arrested for the, uh, you know, for, for the financial collapse. And I think we wanted to talk, um, we really wanted to talk to Professor Chomsky about all sorts of things, from healthcare to, um, to all sorts of social programs, to, to NAFTA, whatever it might be. But we settled on, on trying to streamline the conversation and, and organize it around the idea of inequality. We, it, was, it started to become a popular topic in the news at that time about um, income inequality um, in the U.S. and, of course, globally. And so we really, you know, we knew that if we set out to make something too broad, that we would run the risk of, of making it um, inaccessible for most viewers and also probably a nightmare. Um, we really wanted to organize it around this one, one topic. And I think what was more important than that, what was tantamount to that, um, was, to, was to introduce Professor Chomsky to those who haven't experienced him before in a new way. And then also, I'd say, to reintroduce him to people that are very familiar with his work in a new way. We really wanted to create uh, a film where you got this experience with Noam Chomsky like you've never seen him before. Um, it's very rare that you, you're able to sit with, um, hell, anyone, right? I mean, I don't often sit with anybody I even know on a personal level for 75 minutes and engage in a conversation. And so we really wanted this to be only Noam Chomsky, one single voice. We wanted him to be um, intimate, candid, uh, accessible, uh, you know, everything from the framing, which is very up close and personal, to the, um, to the distillation and the pace of the film. It's very much a, a nonstop engaging uh, discourse and conversation. I'd say more so than, you know, a lecture or a seminar. But, um, but to get back to your question, yeah, we, we set out to make the, the film uh, just, just with him. We had interviewed him um, previously for another film. And, um, yeah, we were thankful enough to be able to go, go back to him time and, again, time and time again over the course of four years and put this movie together. Now, it's interesting because he's actually had uh, experience at uh, an ongoing diary kind of arrangement with other people as well. So he's obviously very generous in spirit. Yeah, Professor Chomsky is, you know, from, from my limited interaction with him, you know, really it was, he'd kind of know we were there, he'd, he'd walk into the, uh, to the interview room, we'd, we'd chit-chat for a split second, and we'd, we'd kind of get right into it, and then afterwards we'd kind of say some pleasantries, but he, you know, he's, he's also, I mean, he's very, he's very personal, and he's, he's very accessible in that, and he wants to engage in these types of conversations, and he was, him and his team were very, um, very generous with their time and scheduling for this film, but yeah, he does make himself available to a lot of a lot of different filmmakers and he and 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 journalists and all and the rest. And so he's, you know, I'm, I'm glad that we're able to be one of many in that in that kind of uh, in that list that's been able to experience him because uh, it's it was really truly a delight. Uh, I mean, you know, he's not he's not sitting in this uh, ivory tower somewhere in Boston. You know where uh, you meet him, and he's he's cold, or he's above you with his intellectual, uh, you know, kind of understanding of the world. He he really wants to speak to the people. He really believes um, that power lies in the hands of the governed, um, and so I think that you know all that comes across 
um, in our conversation with him and, and, of course, in this film. Yeah, before we leave uh, the uh, the film making methodology uh, to look more closely at the uh, subject matter, uh, is it really true that he feels that uh, this is a, a document that uh, uh, encapsulates a last farewell? Because he is actually quite elderly. Yeah, he's now, um, I believe he's 87 years old as of December. Um, Where's yeah, well. <laughs> he's, he's definitely along in years. I mean, I think that, you know, Professor Chomsky, from what I've seen, still hasn't let up with, um, you know, his relentless uh, critique of, 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 you know, of society. I mean, he's still, he's still very much uh, critical of, of, you know, uh, policy around the world. And he's also very um, supportive and uh, he's such a strong advocate still for for this belief that we can struggle for our rights and win great victories. So I hope that he doesn't let up. Now, at the beginning of the film, we mentioned that these are his last, his final long-form interviews of this kind. That's, um, that's based on an email that we received from Professor Chomsky, so that he's no longer doing films like this. I mean, he's still making himself, uh, himself available for, for interviews and the like, but I don't know if he's going to do somewhere he sits down with people over the course of many years and makes a long-form piece. Now, I hope that he does. I actually, you know, I hope that, that we're proved wrong. Um, and, I, and I hope to see Professor Chomsky uh, active in the national and international debate for, for years to come. But yeah, he's, he's now 87 years old. And I know that he's, he's in some ways, I think, I think um, uh, trying to spend more time with his family and, and maybe not be so involved. But I don't know. He's, he's still pretty active. Uh, it's tough for somebody like that, I think, to turn it off. Well, that's the thing about the whole issue of inequality. Like, that's the underpinning no- uh, nature of this film, isn't it? The historically unprecedented inequality, as he sees it, and how elites extract and maintain dominance. That's what he's really trying to get people to understand so that they can uh, turn the key to uh, mm-hmm. a better mm-hmm. future. Yeah, and I think that, you know, I mean, the film, uh, which is pretty apparent from the title, Requiem of the American Dream, yeah, which focuses is a- on, on American society. And, of course, he lives in the U.S. and we're U.S.-based filmmakers. But these principles that are discussed in the film, uh, these ten principles of concentration of wealth and power, they apply globally. And this story of inequality is a global one as well. And also the American Dream, every other country um, has some kind of, uh, association or understanding or interpretation of the American dream as well. It's this idea that, you know, one's able to, to pull themselves up by their own bootstraps and, and you know, if, if they really, they can succeed in the world. They can, they can you know, they can do well. And, of course, um, you know, the film lays out these mechanisms that, that show how the, the financial aristocracy and, and the elite and whatever term you want to give to, the, to those that have power, um, it's what Adam Smith calls the master's of mankind. And, and that's an Adam Smith term in, in, in which Professor Chomsky quotes several times in the film. But the masters of society, this, this is an idea that applies, like I said, globally. Um, and I think our, our understanding of the American dream and our uh, individual experience around the globe and, and how it is that we, we've seen the rich get richer and the poor get poorer, um, obviously it's, it's a global story. And, and also that the film, it's, it's not just chock full of information. It's, it's these ideas and these principles that I think you can walk away with. And what happens with ideas more so than information is, is you understand the 
the concept. You understand uh, the theory. You also see it in practice. And that allows you, I think, then to, to, to walk away from a film where it's not like an end point, but it's a starting point for a larger discussion about democracy, about what kind of society we want to live in, and about how we're going to get there. Well, it's kind of interesting in lots of ways because uh, he is quite an old man and he's able to take people through this step by step from his own personal experience at key points of historical development within the American society. Yeah, I mean, you know, uh, the New York Times uh, just uh, released, um, just made the film a a New York Times critic's pick uh, today. And... Uh, it's if I could plug the film for a second. It's actually having its U.S. theatrical premiere today, yeah. <clears throat> and then of course, as you know, it's, thank you, thank you, and it's playing around the world, and it's going to be at the Transitions Film Festival here soon, I believe, on February twenty fourth. And um, yeah, the he, as as New York Times kind of pointed out, um, actually, I, I could even quote it. The New York Times says that that Professor Chomsky now 87, seems at the height of his intellectual powers. So, you know, really you see him in the film, and granted this was over the course of four years, so um, it's really between the, the years of 82 and 86 for him. Um, he is, he's still sharp, he's still, um, he's still very relevant, he's still very poignant, um, and, you know, I think the way that we structure the film, because at the end of the day we're not just recording this, this long-form conversation the way one would a, a transcription or, you know, it's not laid out as a, a white paper or a treatise or a seminar. It is a film. It does have lots of graphics. It does have, you know, um, a powerful score. It has a lot of um, uh, footage components and techniques that, that, are, that I think enhance and augment a lot of the, the ideas that Chomsky is speaking to. So at 87, yeah, I think that in this film he comes across uh, incredibly, incredibly sharp and and the film, I think, is um, it's not it's not this slow, stodgy type of film. We really wanted it to be something that would grab your attention and hold your attention. Whether, like I said at the beginning, whether you were a, a Chomsky supporter or someone who's being introduced to him for the first time. Oh, there are a couple of things uh, he points out that uh, the system that we have now, uh, this concentration of power. Uh, uh, and money uh, is has got become so extreme that in actual fact we no longer have a capitalist system. That was pretty interesting. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, uh, there's there's aspects when you look at um, when you look behind the scenes and you see the um, not in kind of any conspiratorial way. Just like these, this is the way. I think as, as he rightly points out, when you set up a society like this, well, what do you expect? <laughs> yeah. When these people are in control, well, what do you expect? The idea that, you know, it's not that hard to understand that wealth begets wealth um, and power begets power and wealth begets power and power begets wealth, that there's this vicious cycle. Now, for those who are in that position, it's quite, it's, it's, it's a virtuous cycle for them. It works for them. But, you know, what we, what we keep hammering, hammering on in the film is that this is corrosive to, to democracy, that you have... You have the masters that are, whether it's the explosion of money that helps them run the regulators, whether it's regulatory capture, whether it's how the population is marginalized. I mean, I think there was a study that came out by Martin Gillens, and we referenced that in the film, where because people in the U.S. have such a limited influence on really what happens, that 70% of the people in this country might as well be living on another planet, like, or in another country. It's just, their vo- it's just not represented. So... In a representative democracy, you, you think that 
the idea is that 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 you know, majority rule, minority right, that everyone's that everyone has a voice, but that is obviously slanted and skewed when you have so many people with so much money and so much power. Well, there's a lovely um, couple of things, uh, key elements. The business about the medicine and uh, your uh, constitution quite clearly being uh, skewed towards uh, the uh, moneyed class because, of course, you can't have the rabble being uh, influential. Yeah, I guess you, know, you mentioned rabble, which is obviously an homage to the uh, the one of Chomsky's philosophies or, or, or points. Uh, and actually, I think one of the... Uh, one of the principles in the film, which is keep the rabble in line. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, there is, you know, and, and I'm a filmmaker, so I, I can't, you know, I'm not, I'm not one to talk about, um, you know, how the free market's working or not working and, and, you know, uh, the, what the for-profit motive does. But yeah, you mentioned healthcare. Um, you mentioned, the, uh, I, I forget what else you mentioned, but yeah, the, the for-profit motive, um, is a, is, is a, something that I don't think has any business in, in, in healthcare and some of these other, um, these other things that should be done for the good of society. But yeah, we, we often, we see, you know, it's actually, we interviewed somebody named Luke Mitchell at, the, at, the, at Harper's Bazaar years ago. And he's like, look, in a market-based economy, like this is just, you know, this is the kind of results you sometimes get. I mean, don't be, you can be, you shouldn't be surprised by the results. And I think as Trump's keeps saying, like when it's set up a certain way, well, what do you expect? Like, what do you, what else would you expect? Um, and I think I'd have to harken back to that point in the film. Just, you know, yeah, there's, there's, I, that is the, you know, whether it's the flaw that, um, that Greenspan pointed out in a testimony a few years ago about the, um, about our market system. But yeah, you ultimately are going to have um, abuses of, of that system where people don't, where they operate in their own interests. And in that, you're going to have, their interests that are satisfied, and I think democracy usually suffers as a result. Well, there's some very two other nice points. Uh, there's lots of nice points in this uh, film because it uh, is quite clear uh, a clear explanation of a, of the chronological order to the point that we're in at the moment. But uh, I thought there was something really nice about uh, Chomsky's uh, very personable uh, character, where he points out that uh, he was really surprised that the civilizing effect, as he calls it, of the sixties self-expression period uh, was uh, caused such a violent reaction from the establishment. I found that very interesting that he would re- reflect on that. And I also... Yeah, and, and we were surprised by we were surprised by that too, but I'm sorry, go ahead. No, no, that's all right. And that he said that he wasn't a very good organiser. I thought that was yeah. amusing too. He, yeah, self- no, was... he sees himself as a person who's got a function within the uh, uh, progress towards a better society, just like everyone else. Sure, yeah, and, and maybe I can answer those, uh, I can comment on those, those in reverse order. I think, well, one, um, yeah, he's, he's very humble. Professor Chomsky, um, he's, he's incredibly humble. And every time we tried to ask a question about him, he, uh, he, would, he, would, he, he defers it immediately. Um, he kind of deflects it, I should say, um, off to the side and talks about, you know, what, what the average person can do. And I think the point that he kept making 
he's like, look, I'm not, I was never a great organizer. I was never, I mean, he's, he's somewhat even self-deprecating, but he, I think he's, he's just humble. There's a lot of humility in this man. Um, but he points to a quote, and he said it in every interview. And of course, we only included it once. But every time we sat down with him, I think he always closed with a quote by Howard Zinn, um, the late Howard Zinn, a good friend of his, where Zinn said that it's the countless small deeds by the, the, a large amount of unknown people around the world that actually bends the course of history that, you know, we hear about these leaders throughout time that, you know, that are great leaders and should be revered and remembered, whether it's MLK or whomever that have made great change, but it's the countless people that stood up, um, that we don't know that we don't remember, um, that are just one of many in a crowd that were, that were at that March or that were at at that event or, or fought for that injustice or against that injustice or fought for that legislation or, or did whatever, whatever they did, the people that we don't remember, those are the people that truly, truly deserve the credit for, for bending the arc of history when we have that, that critical mass. And so very deflective, very um, humble and, and very, um, and, and, and very much, uh, very much uh, uh, in, in, very much speaking with, with great gratitude to those who have done so much that, that we don't remember. The, the first point, yeah, I think that it was, it was a surprise to us. It was kind of one of those aha moments um, is that he, he kind of admits he was, he was shocked. You know, I think that he's been speaking about this for so many years, decades, about um, the concentration of wealth in the hands of, uh, of a select few that most nothing surprises Noam Chomsky anymore. But, yeah, to see him saying, look, I didn't expect the backlash of the civilizing effects of the 60s. You know, I think that, you know, he mentions, uh, he mentions the Trilateral uh, Commission on the left in the U.S., and he mentions the Powell Memorandum on the right. He talks in the film about an orchestrated business offensive uh, after that. And, and there were two things. One was, was, the, was the reduction of democracy, the, 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 active, the active kind of decision, the concerted effort to reduce democracy and the other one was to then, of course, um, the financialization of the economy, to restructure the economy. And we've seen um, from that time just the explosion of the financial sector from the 70s to today. I mean, if you look at some of these graphs, it's amazing of how much, um, how little it had to do with the global economy and how much it does now. So, yeah, he was, he was shocked by what he calls the civilizing effects of the 60s, and he... Uh, I think he, he, he lays bare a pretty um, convincing picture of, of the social and the financial backlash to that. Yeah, and, and because we're, uh, it's getting late, uh, just one other thing that was fascinating to me, because in, at the moment in Australia, there is a lot of uh, angst going around in regards to uh, pinpointing people as being un-Australian. It's a, it's a ter- this whole sort of uh, underpinning of uh, attacking people for um, not being Australian, uh, being un-Australian and, and comments like, oh, if you don't like it, then get out of the country, that sort of thing. And he points out that uh, he has been called un-American and he points out that the only places where someone would say that, in his opinion, are totalitarian <laughs> regimes, which I thought was a bit unnerving. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's interesting. You're right. I mean, um, and, and yeah, that sounds that sounds oddly reminiscent of, of of the United States too, where you know if you say certain things, you're un-American. And it's it's interesting to know that that you know, and granted, there's a whole wave of um, 
uh, you know, there's always been there's always nationalism and waves of nationalism that go around. There's also you know the, the world's dealing with some you know xenophobic xenophobic tendencies on on a large scale right now. You know, from everything from the refugee crisis to you know uh, some of our candidates here in the United States that have been conjuring up fears. Uh, within the population, you know. Um, so there's some of those populist tendencies for sure. I think that, yeah, what's, what, Chom- what Chomsky speaks to specifically in the film is, yeah, as you, as you rightly pointed out, that only in these totalitarian regimes would people say that. Like, it's a, it seems such a, it's such a strange thing. I think for him, you know, because for most of us, we see um, dissent as a part of our democratic duty. Um, we see um, speaking out uh, as, a, as a reason to... To want to, why you want to engage and shift, shift a society for the better is because you believe in that society. You believe it can be better, and that you know the fact that dissent and um, certain ideas, be it progressive, be it whatever, have come across as un-American or un-Australian is is really a, a troubling misnomer. Um, but yeah, I mean, as he points out, who would say that's un-Italian or that's <laughs> But I guess, I guess, you know, you do hear that in other countries. I mean, I guess I've heard say, well, that's very un-French, or that's very un-British. So um, it is, it's a strange trend um, because uh, I think it's a way to try to, um, you know, speaking generally here, a way to, um, you know, try to, uh, try to curb uh, dissent and to try to give um, people that do speak out um, some kind of, uh, you know, some kind of negative complexion. Yeah, d- divert attention from the issues that are actually sure. being discussed. Yeah, exactly. and, and make it quite nasty. I mean, then again, I don't know. Maybe there are some people that are genuinely un-Australian. <laughs> no, I, I, <laughs> no, no, it's I, because we just had Australia, uh, what's called Australia Day, but uh, it's actually Invasion Day or Survival Day for Aboriginal sure. people. Yeah, anyway, it's, it's, it's yeah. like Columbus Day, exactly. Exactly, and it's the same discussion, but it's interesting. I just thought it was interesting that he brought it up. Uh, thank you yeah. very much for spending sure. time with us and this actually, morning. If I, could, if I could you know, make a quick, uh, just a, a quick personal note, I, I actually I studied anthropology um, in Adelaide at Adelaide University oh. for a semester in my uh, in my youth. Mm. So uh, I've uh, I have a uh, a a certain relationship with your country, and so I you know I'm thrilled that the film is already played at the trans or that played at the Antenna Film Festival in Sydney. It also played in um, Adelaide, the town in which I studied, and now it's heading to the Transitions Film Festival in in Melbourne on February 24th. So I encourage everyone who's listening to uh, to check it out. Good on you, mate. Cheers. All right. Well, thanks, Annie. Appreciate it. Bye. Hero Mac to Choi, and we were just listening to a chat I did with uh, the, the, one of the directors of Requiem for an American Dream, uh, Jared P. Scott, and uh, the film is going to be part of the 
Transition Film Festival, which starts 18th of February to the 3rd of March, and it will be Wednesday the 24th of February, 8.45pm, and the official uh, uh, cinema for Transition Film Festival is Nova in Carlton. Now we're going to move on to something almost completely different. In 1994, Keating, under the Keating government, promised that he would give the showgrounds in Sydney to Fox. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah, I do. Remember? Mm -hmm. And and this is just such a good example of it, actually. The film school was persuaded to move its premises from uh, Macquarie University, basically, North Ride, to be on the Fox site, the argument being that a nice new building could be built and that they would be closer to industry, right? You know, all of that. Then what's happened is they got their nice new building and they moved and then Fox has on-sold its lease to a consortium of people who involve Jerry Harvey and John Singleton who are now going to charge the film school enormous amounts of rent. They never had to pay rent before and now they're going to pay enormous amounts of rent. So it's another huge hole in their budget. And everybody's just just haven't got uh, their eye on the ball? No, nobody's saying anything. I mean, that's a bit like... When I was at Film Australia and they were trying to sell Film Australia, they did actually succeed in selling the National Transmitter, which used to be a yeah. publicly owned thing. They sold the National Transmitter to Macquarie Bank. What a stupid idea. To, I know. Which then sold it to a Canadian superannuation company, which as far as I know still owns it. But what that meant was that the ABC and SBS now, every year out of their annual budgets, which are going down, not up, have to find enormous amounts of money to pay for their use of the National Transmitter. Now, that's the voice of uh, Sharon Connolly, who used to be the CEO of Film Australia. And if you were wondering, if you'd been wondering how it was possible for uh, the corporate uh, Australia and uh, the in in tandem with uh, government policy, were able to uh, skin the uh, public purse in so many, many different ways. This That was a perfect example of how it is done. Uh, the reason for why I actually spoke to Sharon was because she was particularly angry about the recent sale of a piece of uh, property called uh, Linfield uh, Complex in Sydney. Uh, and uh, I'll let her explain what it's all about. Yeah, I used to be the CEO of Film Australia, which it, it was a government-owned company uh, established in 1946 by the Australian government in order to uh, make productions that would tell people in Australia and around the world about what life was like in our own country. And over the years after the Second War, that uh, company changed several times. Uh, it, it used to be called uh, the Commonwealth Film Unit and then it became called Film Australia. Uh, and in later times, in the uh, 1980s and 90s, it actually became a government-owned company which made programs in the national interest, most of which were documentaries, the sort of things that many people would have seen, things like Cane Toads and Marbo, Life of an Island Man, Rats in the Ranks, that kind of production uh, was produced by Film Australia. 
Um, and in the 60s, uh, the government decided that Film Australia needed a better home, so it invested significant resources in building a studio complex on Sydney's North Shore. And uh, over the years, that became less necessary for the company, which increasingly outsourced production activities around Australia, so people in many states were making films for Film Australia. And so the company decided it would share the Linfield premises with private sector companies in the screen sector. And so it was a very lively kind of centre of filmmaking. Now, when you were saying that uh, it was involved in uh, making uh, documentary films uh, that described uh, Australia to Australians and other people, were they private uh, companies that were then funded to do those documentaries or were they in-house? No, they were in-house until 1988. And then after 1988, uh, the uh, production was outsourced to an independent production sector in Australia which had grown somewhat in years since the war, So, particularly in the 1970s and 80s. So when Film Australia was first established, it needed an in-house production uh, capacity because actually there wasn't that much of an Australian industry of any kind. It was pre-television also, of course. So uh, it provided uh, editing suites and uh, equipment, that sort of thing? That's correct, and and offices for the Film Australia staff who commissioned the productions. But it was turned into a government-owned company in '88, and so most of the productions thereafter were made by independent filmmakers in cities around Australia, um, not only in Sydney. So so the Linfield Studio was the site of the sort of core administration of Film Australia, which by the time I left it in 2004 was around about 50 people. And um, it was also home to a lot of independent film businesses that uh, rented uh, space out there. So... In 2004, I left the company and four years later, um, it was decided by government that it would be merged with the Australian Film Commission and the Film Finance Corporation and the three agencies together would become a new thing called Screen Australia, which is the main film organisation run by the Commonwealth Government that we have today. In 2008, government decided to merge Film Australia with the Australian Film Commission and the Film Finance Corporation and a new entity was created called Screen Australia, and Screen Australia inherited the ownership of the Linfield site. Uh, And it continued to be used as a sort of centre for filmmaking, if you like. Its spaces, offices and facilities were rented out to a number of private sector companies. So where is Linfield in Sydney? Where where is it? Linfield is on Sydney's North Shore. Leafy Linfield, it's often referred to. It's a a very nice, nice suburb, and land there is very valuable as was eventually realised. And uh, so Screen Australia somehow determined that it would sell the property and uh, it put it on the market, I think, last year uh, and it was marketed internationally as a prime residential development site. Um, There was a bit of discussion, and I was part of this discussion uh, publicly at the time, about what would happen to the proceeds of sale should it be sold. Um, And uh, a number of suggestions were raised. Of course, people like me raised a whole lot of ideas about how we might go on using the money from the Film Australia sale to fund um, programs in the national interest. Some people proposed that it might be used to plug some gaps in Screen Australia's funding. Um, Screen Australia had recently 
for instance, uh, decided to discontinue funding to the screen work organisations, organisations like Open Channel in Melbourne and Wide Angle Tasmania and Metro Screen in Sydney and there are also uh, similar organisations in Perth and South Australia. And now those, organi- um, those organisations are incredibly important for training future technicians, etc. Well, those, those organisations have existed in Melbourne's case for 40 years. In Tasmania's case, the, the, it's only a 10-year-old organisation. But yes, they were very important training organisations for all sorts of people involved in filmmaking, technicians, creative people... Uh, and people from the community who needed to learn skills in order to make programs that reflected their own interests. Um, In Tasmania, for instance, there are very few other training options, so it's one of the only things here. However, uh, sadly, uh, in Tasmania, that Screen Network organisation will close in June because Screen Australia said it was unable to go on funding those organisations. Some of us hoped that some of the Linfield money could be used to um, save those organisations. For instance, other people propose that the money might be used to further Indigenous filmmaking, for example. How much money did they realise? $35 million? Uh, That's correct, yes. In the end, the, the, the site was sold and it, uh, it netted government $35 million. Which sounds a bit cheap, actually. <laughs> well, I don't know. I'm not a real estate agent, thank goodness. <laughs> but... Um, um, uh, in fact, then the next thing we heard was that just before Christmas in the mid-year um, financial outlook, the Treasurer, Scott Morrison, announced very quietly, uh, somewhere buried deep in, in his uh, other announcements at the time, that the $35 million realised from the sale of the Linfield property would go some way, not all of the way, to uh, making up the amount that had previously been promised to two very large American-based corporations, 21st Century Fox and Disney, to bribe them to come and make their new productions of Thor and Prometheus, respectively, uh, in Australia. So the sale of Film Australia, which was the iconic production company created in Australia's national interest, and paid for by taxpayers for decades after the Second War, uh, the proceeds of sale of that property are being handed to two of the wealthiest American corporations we know of. Not only has Australia, in handing over this $35 million, subsidised two enormously wealthy corporations that don't really need subsidy, I would have thought, um, but they're Though, they, though the productions may be made in Australia or will be made in Australia will provide jobs for actors and jobs for technicians and other film personnel for a limited period of time, they won't leave behind anything of lasting significance in a number of ways. One, neither of those productions has any particular Australian relevance. They're obviously made for a world market and they're not speaking to Australians, they're not speaking about Australians. They may end up being very entertaining films, but I'm sure that Hollywood could find the resources to make those films itself. Um, Secondly, the intellectual property doesn't remain in Australia. So we've handed over a a, a resource that has existed in public hands since the 1940s. We've handed the proceeds of sale of that resource to wealthy companies who will leave behind 
nothing of lasting cultural value and not even anything of intellectual property value, if you like. No uh, ongoing benefit to the country. Let's go back to Screen Australia and its function as a, I imagine, an organisation that's supposed to be uh, auspicing uh, future Australian film and television and online talent. Uh, It's apparently had a, a lot of money taken out of its budget, but it obviously had no real control over this apparent windfall. Uh, no, obviously not. And uh, I, I think that would have been obvious to people at Screen Australia throughout the process. Um, certainly, when I was the CEO in 1997, there was consideration given to selling the Linfield site. And it was very clear to me at that time that had the site been sold then, the company, Film Australia, would not have benefited from the sale. It was always thought that the proceeds of sale would go back into government revenues. Now, I think in this case, that's precisely what's happened. My guess would be that when ministers of the government, and uh, I have to say the Minister for Foreign Affairs, Julie Bishop, was the one who made the announcement, though I'm not sure who made the decision to give money to... 21st Century Fox and Disney. Because 21st Century Um, Fox is a Murdoch-owned company. uh, Correct, yeah. Um, uh, But when that decision was taken, uh, my suspicion is that Treasury was somewhat surprised and possibly felt that enough money had gone into film in Australia via various other schemes and that any new... Uh, funding decisions would have to be paid for from within the portfolio. Um, and my ge- I'm guessing here, but my, my guess is that uh, Screen Australia suffered very badly from that because actually what was promised to those two productions was $47.3 million all up. So Film Australia's sale provided $35 million of that. The remainder of it has been made up by further cuts to Screen Australia, which had already suffered quite considerably in the previous budget. Uh, And also I understand that the National Film and Sound Archive and the Film School are other agencies which have had small cuts to make up the monies promised for production of Thor and Prometheus. My goodness. Uh, On the other side of all this, this sort of cut, is it distorting uh, the actual types of films that can be made as government withdraws its actual support to fledgling filmmakers? Um, well, I would argue, yes. I, I think it's a very complex scenario. But look, let me say this. Since the creation of Screen Australia in 2008, I think it's fair to say that um, Australian uh, money, originally earmarked as cultural subsidy, has increasingly been uh, used as industry subsidy and increasingly to foreign-owned companies. So... Uh, For example, uh, in 2013-14, something like 67% of Screen Australia's direct subsidy for television drama in Australia went to companies which are foreign-owned. And in a host of ways, not just direct subsidy, Screen Australia has promoted... um, the kind of creation of screen businesses which, in order to survive as viable businesses, 
have inevitably had to uh, sell to foreign owners who therefore control uh, not only the decisions about what gets made, but the intellectual property involved in what finally does get produced. Now, let's go to documentary in particular. There's been a huge resurgence in the making of documentaries, and it's one of the areas that particularly uh, is able to deal with uh, up-close Australian stories, I'd I'd argue. Uh, Are there um, less and less, fewer and fewer things being made because of these cuts? Uh, Oh, yes, I think money for documentary is one of the things that suffered as a result of Screen Australia's own appropriation being cut. So, yes, documentary funding is not uh, what it was. And also I would say that uh, more than a quarter of the documentary subsidy available via Screen Australia is also going to companies that that are uh, foreign-controlled. So uh, anything that's produced primarily for TV and in Australia documentary, like much drama, is produced for TV rather than the big screen. Um, uh, Any subsidies going to TV production are often now going to overseas-owned companies. Why uh, why is that so? Why why is uh, that so? What's the justification for that? uh, Well, (laughs) there hasn't been much talk about justification for that because... Uh, I have to say Screen Australia very quietly changed its guidelines in 2010 to drop the requirement that uh, applicants for funding through Screen Australia should be Australian-controlled companies. Um, Why? So uh, that that happened with very little consultation indeed, actually. Um, uh, I think the justification is a business one, that Screen Australia was established on very different... um, underpinnings than an agency like, say, Film Australia. Film Australia was created in order to make programs in the national interest. Screen Australia was created to fund productions produced by what they hoped would be sustainable Australian production companies. Now, a quick look at the market conditions in which screen businesses operate would show anybody that Australia is not a sufficiently large market in and of itself to be able to make uh, large-scale productions viable. It just doesn't happen that way. And so if a company is going to be a sustainable business, it has to engage actively with the rest of the world, uh, particularly the English-speaking world. And, of course, what happens in the end is um, a company that's good and a company that's producing good stuff is going to, you know, want to go on doing that and in order to want to, to go on doing that it needs the kind of venture capital that only larger much larger overseas owned corporations are going to provide so we've seen uh, a number of takeovers happen in the sector uh, and we've also seen overseas companies coming in to um, take advantage of uh, relaxed subsidy guidelines and offsets uh, created by government since 2008 foreign companies can see that there's some advantage to them in having Australian subsidiaries and they come in and, and use those to hoover up the, uh, the available public monies. So I guess what I'm saying is that I think since 2008, what used to be cultural subsidy has increasingly become industry subsidy. And in my view, I think it's time we had a good look at that and started to look at the implications for our culture. Uh, which includes some of the things you ask questions about, like the training, you know, if we're not training people anymore through the screen network organisations, if we're 
training people through the film school, which of course is only based in Sydney, to um, uh, to engage with the international world of film production, then who's being trained to make sure that we capture our own uh, record of Australian life um, or to make films that reflect our own interests. Uh, so there's a whole lot of cultural questions, I think, that arise from not having an industry which is at least part of, which is controlled from Australia and uh, decisions are made in Australia about what would get made. And... It seems to me that cultural subsidies should be delivered on that basis. Industry subsidy is something else altogether. Oh, it's very interesting because it's a, a, a government that quite clearly can't differentiate between the notion of telling Australian stories and uh, the desire to big note itself on the international scene. I think that's a very good point. And I think increasingly Australians can't... I. I think we need to think about how we educate people on this question too because I think for many Australians they think Australia's... And, and they're encouraged by the media and the politicians to think this is the case, to think that Australians are doing all right if you know Russell Crowe and Kate Blanchett pop up in big Hollywood blockbusters occasionally. Um, uh, and, of course, that is not the case. Um, uh Terrific that Australia has talent that can work around the world. You know, I don't have any problem with that at all, and I think they're both both those names are terrific actors, and many of the um, directors and other talented people working elsewhere, in and out of Australia, they're all marvellous talents, and that's great. You know, but they don't but need but they don't need a subsidy. They're yeah, already well, doing it. No, they don't need subsidy, and the companies that are producing the material that they're in don't need the subsidy. What we need is the subsidy to be focused on people here to develop their skills and talents so that they can go on to either take the place of the Russell Crowes and the Kate Blanchetts or, indeed, to make things here that uh, that international uh, companies will never want to make. I mean, there are so many Australian subjects and um, stories that... People uh, are obviously very interested in seeing, but why would Hollywood produce them? I mean, I think that we've had some good examples of this. Well, we have. Uh, the, um... Yeah. Two films recently that, step, that spring to mind, Last Cab to Darwin and also The Dressmaker. That's, I was just going to say The Dressmaker. I think yeah. that, that film is so quintessentially Australian and yeah. the box office has actually proven it. Well, yeah. over, some overseas people are just completely bemused by it. Exactly. I think that's absolutely right. They are very Australian productions and they've done very well domestically. People in Australia want to see them. But it's not necessarily the case that overseas audiences will want to see them. I I certainly hope they do and that would be great if they did. But the measure of success should not be whether an international audience wants to see them. The measure of success should be whether Australians are getting uh, a sort of cultural return on their taxes that go toward um, supporting production in Australia. And I I think this is... I mean, I think that's the nub of it, and I think that's what we've got to start really thinking about. What is industry policy and what is cultural policy? And that was Sharon Sharon Colony. Colony. Oh, I can't even say it. Uh, I'll start with... uh, We're coming to the end of the show. We're at the end of the show, and I'm weary, I guess. Uh, Solidarity Breakfast on 3CR. This morning, we uh, had Chris White, former South Australian... uh, 
Trade Hall Council uh, Secretary who uh, gave us a bit of a talk about uh, the uh, Royal Commission. Uh, Mark Zinsack from the Tax Justice Network who was uh, talking about uh, the connection between tax and inequality. Jarrett Pete Scott who is one of the directors of Requiem for the American Dream, which is part of the Transition Film Festival, and Sharon Connolly. I see I got my uh, tongue back into order. She was the uh, former CEO of Film Australia, not the Film Australian Film Commission, Film Australia, and she was talking about our giving over of public funds to large international uh, media companies on the uh, short-sighted notion that... Uh, uh, creating jobs and getting a bit of tax that way is really the future of uh, or a wise way of uh, dealing with uh, our cultural needs. Anyway, I'm getting out of here. I'm going to go out with Hold My Hand, Lude Bennett and Sweet Cheeks. You want to hold my hand You need to tell me You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.